Hello and welcome. It's Progressive News Network, PNN, for Sunday, October 18. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. And tonight, wow, we get such a show for you. We've got Rick Spizak with uh, Maggie Herchala, who has been on the show quite a bit. Uh, She's up against a slap suit, and uh, she's basically lost everything uh, in being sued for speaking out at a county commission meeting. So we need an update on that, and Rick will have that at 8 o'clock. And at 8.30, Janine Moloff has big plans for her piece on the Justice Report on Trump's response to COVID-19. So I'm really looking forward to that. She's been working really hard on this story. And uh, I've been working on a deep dive into this big New York Times or New York Post story that was uh, censored across social media that had to do with Hunter Biden and Ukraine and all kinds of different twists and turns. And so I'm going to be bringing you a little bit about what that is about um, here in just a second. So hold tight. We'll be right back. Okay, so this uh, this New York Times, or New, why do I keep saying this? The New York Post story uh, that first broke on October 14, earlier this week. Uh, I've got links in the show notes to a couple of the stories. If you go to New York Post and you search on Hunter Biden or Hunter Biden laptop, you will get probably, it's at least two pages of stories. You got to scroll back to the earliest, and they're arranged chronologically with most recent first. So scroll all the way back. You can also use the, the, the two links that I provided in the show, but there is a ton of material up there because uh, as soon as they uh, publish this story at 5 o'clock in the morning on the 14th, Then uh, it was up for maybe two hours and Facebook and Twitter started censoring it. And their reaction was was just bizarre, which I think, you know, if I was the publisher of the New York Post and this sort of thing happened to one of our stories, on the one hand, I would be like, oh, wow, yay. You know, I mean, people are going to want to read. uh, People are going to more... Uh, be more excited to read something that they're being told they're not allowed to read um, if we lived in normal times. So we don't live in normal times. And so what's going on now with social media is if if it's not in your social media feed, you're not going to see it. And uh, Facebook and Twitter know this and they, uh, you know, promptly set about to find some rationale to uh, censor this story. Um, Twitter landed on a excuse that had to do with their hacking policy. Um, 
I'll get to that in a second. And uh, they they suspended uh, one of the editors at the New York Post for posting the story. They said because they uh, um, had breached their rules having to do with hacking, even though this material is not hacked. Um, and then so people were getting and not just people, people, but. I guess you would say important people, people associated with the publication, reporters and editors, were being censored and and suspended. Uh, they eventually got reinstated. And then it was really weird. Later in the day, Twitter went down for about an hour or so. And I believe what they were trying to do during that time was to write some code that would allow them to... Um, post a warning so like if anybody tried to share this story you would get this series of warning messages that say the first one said uh you're going to a a, a site that um could be dangerous which is just weird bizarre language uh and then and then they said uh they uh um did another warning that is like right there in the post that is in line and this is this kind of warning is so new, I think that that's probably what made the whole platform crash the other day when this when this story broke. But, um, you know, this is a, the fact that uh, Facebook and Twitter were keen to censor this and nobody wants to. Um, I mean, I, 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 I. I want to say that nobody wants to censor a story, but, you know, I think that once you get to be uh, the size of monopolies that these social media companies are at, especially Facebook, uh, they're not playing anymore. They're not uh, participating in any kind of way that is um, uh, on the up and up. So if they want to censor something because the leadership and the companies are on the side of one political party or another, they're going to do that. And we've been seeing in the last couple of days a lot of um, what I would say is cheerleading from the liberal side of the spectrum for this censorship and you know just like anything else that has to do with democracy if you don't have a system of checks and balances if things aren't fair across the board sure it's fine when you're in power that uh that the companies can can censor political information that is counter to you know your political party's interests but that doesn't mean that these companies are always going to be on the side of your political party. But what's encased in that is this idea that my interests and your interests are somehow wrapped up in the interests of a social media company or a political party. And I would like to argue that Regardless of, you know, which side of the fence Facebook or Twitter are on politically, which end of the spectrum, they're always going to cater to the interests of capital. They're always going to cater to the interests of big money. And, you know, the, the voices of the people are always going to be silenced right now because we have this um, 
black swan events, I might call it, that, you know, we've got Trump in office and he's he's a crazy madman. Um, people are willing to uh, entertain more extreme measures to try and tamp him down. And psychologically, I understand that. But politically, I think that that is really dangerous. And uh, so we're going to get into a little bit of that. But, um, you know, I feel like I feel like uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, I want to do a couple of things. I want to first inoculate um, myself and PNN. We're not fans of Trump by any stretch of the imagination. The story that was uh, written on the Hunter Biden laptop, which we're going to get into, uh, for no reason at all, they, at least as far as I'm concerned, for no reason at all, they released videos and photographs that um, I think are deeply hurtful to Hunter Biden and the Biden family that uh, highlight Hunter Biden's addiction problems. We know that Hunter Biden was uh, going into, we know from these actual uh, emails that Hunter Biden was in rehab when Joe Biden announced that he was running for president in 2019. And, um, you know, I, one of the things that he said in there was, you know, I'm the reason why if you lose this, I'll be the reason why it was words to that effect. And, you know, he's feeling sorry for himself, you know, has absolutely no endorphins left, you know, like people are when they go into rehab and, you know, just feeling really awful. And reading that email, I got this picture of a person who is super unhappy, is super, you know, pushed around and feels like he doesn't have much agency. Um, you know, <clears throat> This is this is not me like standing up for like a, a, a very wealthy, powerful person. This is me saying <clears throat> addiction is a disease. It is an illness. And I think that we have to be very careful with real the real people on the other end of these stories and, you know, take things into account at least. And I think it was really crappy to release the the sex videos and the and the video having to do with using crack cocaine and that type of thing. I mean, it does in, inform the larger picture. And I know that, that what the Republicans are trying to do is <clears throat> to paint the Biden's family as being uh, that their corruption is part of a moral issue. I think that that's what they're reaching for. And I think that by and large, the American people know enough about addiction at this point. And there's enough of us who, who know uh, about addiction issues who push back on that strong enough that, that at least that part of it's going to backfire of its own um, issues. You know, you don't really, you don't have to censor that because people are already, we're already having that, that conversation. So I wanted to, I wanted to address that. I also wanted to address why progressives should care about this issue before we get into it, you know, before we get into the details, I believe that what is, and what I'm getting ready to, to share with you guys is 
it's a profile of American politics, politics in the United States, politics in, in Washington right now, and how corruption is on both sides of the aisle, and it's on both sides of the spectrum and uh, and throughout the spectrum. And this particular situation with Hunter Biden and the board of Burisma is um, – it encompasses issues that have to do with war and peace. It has to do with the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. And uh, there are, if you're at all inclined to uh, peace activism, if you're at all inclined to uh, um, be against war, you know, if you've ever gone to a protest against war, uh, if you lived through the Cold War, you might... Uh, find a, a reason to be interested in this. And if you're interested in a healthy democracy, I think that you should be interested in this. And hopefully by the time that I'm done, you, all of these types of issues will be laid bare. And uh, we'll return to that particular issue here in a second. Uh, also, right... It, the situation with Hunter Biden and Burisma is really interesting because this puts the Bidens front and center with a a a part of Ukrainian politics that is deeply entwined with right wing extreme right wing uh, militantism. And these are the same Ukrainian militants that the Proud Boys have trained with or did train with before the Charlottesville um, Unite the Right protest. So when those guys were out there chanting blood and soil, this is this is a move that they learned in the Ukraine as they were training with the Azov Battalion, which is a notorious uh, neo-Nazi fascist um, military arm. So these are not people that I would want my party to be in bed with. These are people that I would, um, if it were on Trump's end, I would be jumping up and down and being like, you know, of course they're in bed with the uh, right wing extremists and the neo-Nazis. That makes perfect sense. When it has to do with uh, people in our party, especially people who are, uh, you know, widely, they're seen as, you know, well-liked or widely appreciated or whatever, you know, Joe Biden has this persona or this brand of being like every man or whatever and being like, uh, you know, Joe of the neighborhood or something. And this cuts against that. Best case scenario, what I would hope would happen uh, as fallout from this is that they cut ties with these uh, people in Ukraine. And should Joe Biden get elected, perhaps we will see reforms that uh, regulate whether family members can serve in big corporate boards in countries that the that our Secretary of State and so on and so forth, that we have foreign policy initiatives uh, going in, in in a hot manner. Um, 
The U.S. is giving Ukraine tens of millions of dollars right now to build up their military in this proxy war with Russia. That is something that I think progressives should be aware of and should also be very interested in. Uh, in this story, you have the world's largest media platform, social media platforms, uh, exercising partisan censorship. So we touched on that for a second. Um, and we also touched on the fact that uh, they're on the side of the Democrats today. There's nothing that says that these guys are going to be on the side of the, uh, the Democrats forever. And we also really more importantly need to understand that this isn't a left right red team blue team thing we have a spectrum of interests and i know that people who identify as progressives generally identify with you know capital t the the people capital p the people and our interests are generally uh, you know, to get out from under the thumb of, you know, different sorts of oppression, whether that oppression has to do with, with uh, economics or, or race or gender, those kinds of identity issues, or having to do with war and peace. Now, lastly, Trump famously meddled in Ukraine. So, uh, you know, you got a little timeline here. You've got um, Trump did a phone call with the uh, the new Ukrainian president Zelensky in July of 2019. And for that phone call where he said that he wasn't going to give them $400 million in military aid in the form of javelin missiles that are manufactured in Tucson, Arizona, uh, you know, for that, he was impeached in, in the house and it wasn't, uh, it didn't go through the Senate, but he was impeached in the house. Uh, so, you know, Trump was absolutely guilty in the eyes of Congress, you know, and they they you know found found it, it uh, important to go after him on this issue for. So you know we worry, we should worry as people who are interested in uh, what's going on in the world. We should be worried that this would also become a problem for potentially the new president from the Democratic Party. Um, in that timeline, by the way, the Trump phone call happened in July of 2019. The laptop that is in the story that we're going to be talking about was dropped off at the computer repair store in April of 2019. So you got April, all of April, May, June, so a couple of months, July, Trump makes that phone call to Zelensky, and he mentions a lot of stuff about Ukraine. He wonders if, if, a, if the server that uh, was involved, the DNC servers, if they had been imaged and if that image uh, resided in the Ukraine, and which just seemed totally off the wall at the time. So I wonder if there's there was something that was gleaned from these uh, from this electronic device that filtered out to him. Because we know that the computer repair shop first gave it to the FBI and then gave an image to a disk image to the um, 
law firm that Rudy Giuliani works with. And that's there, there's this Giuliani uh, intersection, which, of course, you know, people are going to have trouble with anything that Giuliani brings to bear in the in the public marketplace of ideas. Um, but uh, but, you know, it is what it is. The, it, Rudy Giuliani is is in on this. That happened after the they gave it to the FBI. So it sat with the FBI for a while. And chances are, if it, if if the FBI had it, there are people in the FBI who are pro-Trump and there are people in the FBI who are anti-Trump. And so, you know, he very likely could have gotten a wind of what was on that computer through the FBI uh, before he got it through Giuliani's law firm. The timeline continues. Uh, Giuliani was supposed to make a trip to the Ukraine in December of 2019. So July, August, September, October, November, December, that's four or five months later. So you got two months between the laptop being dropped off, then four or five months between Trump's phone call to Zelensky. And then Giuliani was going to make a trip to Ukraine to follow up on some of these like little details. And he uh, pulled back. And he said he wasn't going to go because people were on to them. People were like asking questions and stuff. But this timeline right here tells me that there, the team Trump had some information, had some in, inside information that we have not been privy to as of yet. And, um, you know, such as it is, such such as it is. Now, we're we're getting ready to talk about. Uh, meddling in foreign countries and uh, with regard to the Ukraine and this story. And I want to, I want to do one more thing before we jump all the way into it. Um, uh, we're, we have raw nerves as a country from allegations in 2016 of Russian meddling in United States presidential election. And uh, we need to we need to come to terms with what it means to be actors on a global stage and how that impacts us and how that impacts others. And so I want you to listen to this clip. Uh, it's very short, 16 seconds of Barack Obama addressing this issue. Occasionally have to twist. Oh, back it up. Here we go. We occasionally have to twist the arms of countries that wouldn't do what uh, we need them to do if it weren't for you know, the, the various economic or diplomatic or in some cases military uh, leverage that we had. So, you know, the context of that is uh, Obama is giving an interview and he's he's talking about how the executive branch can exercise its power in the manners in which, and he just very briefly says, uh, we have various economic, diplomatic, and in some cases, military leverage. What we saw in the Trump phone call to you, to the new Ukrainian president Zelensky was, uh, he was using diplomatic channels to put economic and military pressure on Ukraine, because what was uh, in the offing 
was $400 million of Javelin missiles that were produced and that are bought from the United States. So that military aid is uh, is significant, and we're going to come back to that in just a second. So, okay, that's all of the, wow, that's a lot of preamble, and I got to, you know, hey, sorry, guys, but, you know, I got to do what I got to do. Um, so let's get right into it. We've got these New York Post stories. Uh, here's some... Here's some headlines. Emails reveal how Hunter Biden tried to cash in big on behalf of family with Chinese firm. That story came after the main story, which is uh, not in front of me. Hmm. I'll come back to that. Uh, here's here's a few more that they wrote off of it. Uh, text messages show raw and intimate exchange between Joe and Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden emails pics reveal a wild life and a pained soul. Uh, I have to agree with that, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this uh, situation with the addiction that we mentioned earlier. Uh, so the basics here are that a laptop was dropped off at a computer repair place in Wilmington, Delaware. There is a near blind, honest to goodness, there is a near blind uh, um, computer repair shop, Mr. Robot kind of figure who took the computer in and presumably was the person who alerted the FBI to having this this laptop so the laptop came in and it was never picked up the laptop had stickers for the biden's foundation on on the outside of the thing and you, you got to figure if you're in wilmington delaware or in delaware is a small state anyway everyone knows the biden's and and uh i, I mean if if it was Hunter Biden who came in and dropped it off or his wife uh, came in and dropped it off. I mean, people, people are going to know that, you know, it is 70,000 people live in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, I lived in a, in a city that was about 50,000 people for 10 years in, in Tennessee. And I can tell you, it, everybody knows everybody's daggum business in these, these kind of, these kinds of places. Um, so it doesn't, point being, is it, it doesn't really rattle my cage that, you know, that it's not like dropping off your computer uh, to some corporate entity that is in a giant city or giant suburb. Like you don't have the degree of anonymity that you would probably have in a place like Wilmington, Delaware with an independent um repair shop uh on this computer were a bunch of emails lots and lots and lots of emails that had to do with uh hunter biden's uh relationship to this company barisma how he got the job lots of emails having to do with hunter biden's relationship to companies in china and what the uh what the remuneration is for all of these jobs you know how that distribution of money worked uh you know is pretty much you know down in the details like these the, the thing about the laptop is <clears throat> that it, it it's it wasn't like a work laptop. This is somebody's, 
you know, laptop that they've carried around with them for however long. And it just had all of their life stuff on it, you know, and that's, that's where the photos and videos come in, um, that, uh, allegedly show Hunter Biden, using crack and having sex and just generally uh, exhibiting all of the behaviors that one would associate with the uh, with a need to, you know, get happy and get into rehab and and get well. You know, this is this is how I see that. This is somebody who is who is not well. Um, okay, so. Let's start here. Jonathan Turley did a wrote a piece in The Hill. Jonathan Turley used to be on Keith Olbermann's show quite a bit. He's a constitutional law professor. He's a lawyer uh, at Washington University. He does public interest law at, at George Washington University. He's the Shapiro professor at that um, university. Uh Jonathan Turley is one of these guys, kind of like Glenn Greenwald, who, you know, infuriates people, switches between infuriating liberals and people on the left. And then, you know, then he'll uh, do stuff that is uh, favorable to our position. This is what you kind of want in people who are interested in constitutional law. Uh, and this is also, you know, this kind of mirrors what I was saying about, you know, social media companies might be your friend one week and they might not be your friend the next week. You know, this is why we have certain laws that level the playing field. But Jonathan Turley writes that, um, uh, he says, many of us have questioned the sketchy details of how the laptop reportedly was left by Hunter Biden with a near blind computer repairman um, just weeks before the presidential election. Um, that's not right, though, because it was dropped off in 2019. So it wasn't just week. I mean, it was just weeks before if you counted the fact that the primaries were starting, but the story hasn't broken until recently until just before the uh, presidential election and I failed to say we've got 16 days until we vote so 16 days until the presidential election that is how uh, close to the wire it is that, that this stuff has come out um, he says he continues there are ample examples there are ample reasons to question whether this material was the product of a foreign intelligence operation which the fbi is apparently investigating now the fbi has had the laptop for more than a year so you would think that they would know by now whether or not it was foreign intelligence um he goes on to say uh he jumps right into this idea of compromat, which is a Russian term for compromising information. And he says that the thing about compromat is that it's often true. It wasn't in the case of the Steele dossier, but that's a whole other situation. Um, indeed, the most damaging and most useful compromat is when it's true. Otherwise, you just deny the allegations and expose the lie. Now, this is super important. The Biden campaign, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, no one has denied 
that this electronic device or that these emails and photos and stuff, no one has denied their authenticity. They've denied, uh, they've, They've done the thing where you criticize the messenger. So Giuliani is eminently questionable. Uh, they've uh, questioned the timing. The timing is eminently questionable for sure. 16 days right now before the election. Um, they're going on this huge narrative expansion that this is more evidence of Russian interference in the U.S. elections, which is a huge stretch and quite ironic given what we're talking about with regard to Ukraine, uh, because Ukraine actually, uh, I bet very few people listening know this, but Ukraine uh, meddled heavily in the 2016 election. And if I stop stalling, we'll get to that part. Uh Turley continues, if the emails and images are genuine, then the Bidens appear to have lied for years as a raw influence peddling scheme worth millions stretched from China to Ukraine to Russia. Moreover, these countries likely have had the compromising information all along while the Bidens and the media were denying reports of illicit activities. So Charlie is, you know, he's he's using his experience with these kinds of things and with compromise and he's saying, you know, this is somebody who's who's known to have had these addiction issues. This is somebody who is known to have had issues in his personal life, those types of things are compromising. That is actually exactly the kind of thing that these, uh, you know, players on the global stage in countries like Ukraine and China and Russia, it's exactly the kind of thing that they will use against you. Um, so it's, Charlie's making the point that it's, really troubling that Hunter Biden was put in the position as someone who suffers from addictions, uh, put in the position of um, being kind of a keystone in, uh, in in his family's affairs like this, which is actually what he was saying in the text messages to his dad when he started rehab was, you know, me being a part of this has, has injured you. And, uh, uh, he was he was feeling some amount of guilt for that. So we don't know what has gone on behind the scenes with China and Russia and Ukraine. I'm sure that there's been a lot of drama, just a lot of drama. Um, the Turley and Glenn Greenwald both talk about this this uh, event this week in terms of censorship and they both bring up the fact that social media companies uh, enjoy legal protection they're indemnified under section 230 of the federal communications decency act from liability over what posters may share the reason that these companies are viewed as neutral platforms that's it's because they're viewed as neutral platforms, they enjoy this immunity or this in, this uh, indemnity from liability in uh, from Section 230. Uh, and one might say that the way that that's written, as long as they are 
just providing the means and not acting as editors and publishers, as long as they're just providing the means that, you know, people can get news and not making the news, then 230 can apply to them and they can not be liable for when people post things that are, you know, actionable. Um, Moving on. There's been a lot of people on the liberal side of the aisle who have been calling for, literally calling for Chinese-style internet censorship and have declared that, quote, in the great debate of the past two decades about freedom versus control of the network, China was largely right and the United States was largely wrong. That is Harvard law professor Jack Goldsmith and University of Arizona law professor Andrew Keen Woods. Um, These are two academics recently who have lined up behind the United States instituting some sort of Chinese-style censorship. So, yay! Um, Turley goes on to say, The media has spent years publishing every wacky theory of alleged Trump-Russia collusion, Thousands of articles detailing allegations from the Steele dossier, which not only is now discredited, but also shown to be based on material from a known Russian agent. And I know that a lot of listeners are not aware of that fact, uh, even though I've talked about it. But uh, the Steele dossier has just been completely shredded and thrown out. But the fact that the media talked about it for three years as if it was, you know, gospel, good luck getting people to back away from it. Good luck changing people's minds about whether the stuff in there is true or not. The Steele dossier revealed many of us agreed on the need to investigate because it was uh, when the Steele dossier was revealed, many of us agreed on the need to investigate it because if it was the work of foreign intelligence, the underlying compromat could be true. So this is why Turley starts out the piece talking about compromat. So if the underlying compromat is true, then we've really, really got a problem. Uh, today, in contrast, and that was with regard to Russiagate and the Steele dossier. So we investigated it. We found that the underlying compromat, the P-tape and all of that stuff, <clears throat> that that stuff wasn't true. Turned out it wasn't true. Otherwise, Trump would have been impeached on that. And he wasn't impeached on that. He was impeached on his phone call to uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky. Um, today, in contrast, the media not only is dismissing the need to investigate the Biden emails, but ABC News's George Stephanopoulos didn't ask Biden about the allegations during a two-hour town hall on Thursday. Can you imagine? I mean, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch that. I didn't watch Bush's, nah, Bush's, Trump's um, town hall. I just, I, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that nonsense. I'm not interested in it. If they... I kind of wonder whether there's going to be a last debate because Joe Biden's got to know that if he's on a debate stage with Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is going to bring this up. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see if this gets talked about a little bit more. Uh, Real quick, Glenn Greenwald, this is in the show notes, did a... um, 
did a piece called Facebook and Twitter cross a line far more dangerous than what they censor. And um, really interesting fact right in the lead of this piece. He says the New York Post is one of the country's oldest and largest newspapers. It was founded in 1801 by Alexander Hamilton, the one and only of the musical situation. So Alexander Hamilton founded the New York Post in 1801, and it's only one of three U.S. newspapers. Um, It's one of the three largest circulated newspapers in the United States. Um, It was purchased in 1976 by Rupert Murdoch, who turned it into more of a sensational tabloid kind of situation. Um, That is what it is. It was one of Murdoch's early forays into, uh, into media in the United States into, you know, really gobbling up medias. Um, The important stuff in Glenn Greenwald, at least the important stuff as, as I saw it, has to do with the grave dangers posed by censorship um, by Silicon Valley giants whose industry leaders and workforce overwhelmingly right now favor the Democratic candidate and how they took extraordinary steps to block millions, perhaps tens of millions of American voters from being exposed to what purports to be a major expose by one of the country's oldest and largest newspapers. He describes the rationale that was used by Facebook and Twitter to censor the material. And he goes on. He talks about the Steele dossier. He talks about um, how the allegations in the Steele dossier were circulated on Facebook and Twitter gajillions of times and that none of that got any kind of fact-checking or got any kind of... um, you know, warning and dangerous material when when that was shared. Of course, Rachel Maddow, uh, with her ongoing uh, RussiaGate uh, situation on MSNBC, that was that was its own thing. No one no one put a warning on on her materials. And so, what we're getting to is we're getting to this like kind of dangerous place where, if and this is Greenwald's main thing is. Uh, you don't get the warnings if the conspiracy theories or the compromising information or the hack materials or the leaks or whatever it is, the unauthorized disclosures come from the national security state or are leaked by the CIA or the FBI to the Washington Post or NBC News. Uh, there is going to be no fact checking. There is going to be no warning labels. None of that happens. Uh, and you know, this is, this is where we're headed to where everything that we read is vetted in this kind of mockingbird, uh, project mockingbird or mockingbird operation mockingbird, uh, kind of manner where the national security state gets to have, uh, gets to have a say as to whether we get to see or read any of this stuff. Um, Okay, so I think that covers the basics. Now, part two. I'm going to come back in just a second with part two uh, because I want to give you guys 
the whole picture of why all this is important. So hang on. Give me just a second to get a drink of water. <laughs> and I'll be right back. Okay, you would be completely within uh, reason to be like, what the hell? Why does this Ukraine stuff matter? Uh, you know, why why should should anybody care? Now, um, to help unpack this, I've I've got this clip right here. This is a very famous clip. This is uh, Joe Biden at oops, sorry, Joe Biden at the Council on Foreign Relations talking about uh, holding back $1 billion in aid to Ukraine uh, in order to get a prosecutor fired who was, at the time, looking into Burisma, and we found out later was specifically looking into the situation with Hunter Biden. So, oopsie, here we go. I guess the... 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and uh, and I was going supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee, and I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had they were walking out to the press conference, said, "No, nah, I said I'm not going to, or we're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> Got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. Over Someone who was solid. Put in place someone who was solid. Okay, so... Listen, we're Americans. These are a lot of names that, that don't make any sense. Let's really quick talk about who these who these parties are. Um, uh, first of all, we have uh, Zolchevsky. Zlachevsky, okay, these are hard for me to pronounce, but Zlachevsky was, is the owner of Burisma. He's a Ukrainian oligarch. You have, um, oh, here we go, uh, Yanukovych, who was the previous president. You have Poroshenko, who is the, who was installed after the Maidan coup. Then you have Leshenko, who was the new prosecutor, who replaced Shorkin, Shokin, who was the prosecutor who wanted to go after Burisma. Um, and that's it for the Ukrainian names. All right. Slokovsky, Yanukovych, Poroshenko, Leshenko, and Shorkin. Shorkin and Leshenko are the prosecutors. One fired, one newly installed. You have Yanukovych, who was the previous president uh, that we removed in a coup, and Poroshenko installed after Maidan. And you've got Zlokovsky, who owns Burisma and is a Ukrainian oligarch. Um, and uh, Biden 
patron, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that you got to understand about Ukraine is that Ukraine is the site of a proxy war with Russia. It is very similar to Syria in this way. In fact, they've been taking the template from Syria and uh, uh, superimposing it, using it in Ukraine in terms of, you know, how how to meddle and and move things around and uh, um, make money, essentially, and, and make power and gain he- hegemony in the region. The Syria model is being used in Ukraine. And, and, of course, you know, things that we learn from Ukraine are going to be used in, in other places. Uh, in the show notes, I've got a couple of articles from the Gray Zone. I have parts one and two of a conversation that Aaron Maté did with Max Blumenthal. And these were published exactly a year ago. Uh, they came out October 7, 2019. And so this just gives you a sense of how evergreen all of this stuff is. So in 2019, like we just discussed on the timeline, was very important to this whole situation. And of course, the gray zone was right on top of it. So uh, patronize the gray zone, please. They're good folks. They do really good work. Um, Max Blumenthal does, is very keen in the first article, which is Trump meddled in Ukraine and he's not alone. He, he's very keen right straight up in the beginning to lay out how all of this intersects with Russiagate. Um, And he says, so it looks like there was some kind of quid pro quo where Trump was asking for, uh, uh, in exchange for military aid up to $400 million, Trump was asking for assistance from Ukrainian leadership in his investigation of the, uh, of his investigation and of Attorney General William Barr's investigation into the origins of Russiagate. Now, you might not be aware of this, uh, but there is a criminal investigation on the origins of Russiagate, and it's been a big bone of contention. Uh, uh, Trump wanted the information uh, from Special Prosecutor Durham. He wanted that report before the election, and Durham said, no, I am not going to release that report before the election. Um, And so, you know, this is all of this is wrapped up in Russiagate. So you've got really big, uh, really big stakes on the side of the Trump team. And you also have really big stakes on the side of the DNC who are up to this, up to their eyeballs. Um, Blumenthal continues uh, that uh, that Russiagate has turned out largely to be an elaborate national security state hoax. You know, it was it was a propaganda uh, operation designed, number one, to undermine uh, to politically undermine Donald Trump before he came into office and while he was into office. You know, kind of like the way the Whitewater investigation crippled the uh, first Clinton administration and blessed over a little bit into the his second term. Uh, 
So he says it's really legitimate to look into the origins of Russiagate and how all of this was born uh, in Ukraine. And, um, you know, this doesn't mean that that Trump is legitimate or defensible at all, um, but it shows how we as, you know, people who associate from time to time with the Democratic Party, uh, we have to really be on our toes about this. He says Ukraine absolutely did interfere in the 2016 election, and its interference uh, was possibly more consequential than anything Russia allegedly did, starting with the interference by Siri Lerish, Sirhi, Sirhei, um, Leshenko, who was the head of the National Corruption Board, basically a U.S. corruption uh, creation in Ukraine, which was supposed to crack down on uh, corruption internally. Now, this is something that that we put together, and uh, Blumenthal is talking about this in 2019. Since then, we've learned more about what was going on with this uh, corruption. Uh, organ that was created and what it actually did. He says it was set up with the assistance of the FBI and in many ways was a U.S. vehicle for influencing Ukrainian domestic politics, which are pretty much playing out completely under the watch of the U.S. Uh, That's a big that is a big paragraph. There is a lot there. I mean, he's basically saying that, you know, you know how how we were all pissed off about Russia meddling in the United States election, he's basically saying, hey, look, you know, the U.S. is really calling all the shots in Ukraine. Um, What happened with Lyshenko and the Ukrainian government in general under Poroshenko, um, uh, which was a very nationalist government and deeply opposed any collaboration uh, uh, with their historic trading partner Russia. So this is what was in the offing at the um, during the Maidan coup is the previous president um, was friendly to Russia and friendly to eastern Ukraine which abuts and and borders on Russia and they wanted somebody more from western Ukraine that uh, that was hostile to Russia. You know, this is part of our proxy war situation. So, um, so they wanted something, someone deeply opposed to Russia uh, in the United States as president, and they favored Hillary Clinton for that. Hillary Clinton was considered more anti-Russian than Trump, more supportive of the post-Maidan government. Donald Trump was being branded as Putin's puppet in Washington, and so. The Ukrainian government, through this anti-corruption board, interfered. This is really the start of all of this, is through this anti-corruption board. Um, Lashenko released the Black Ledger on Paul uh, Manafort, who was a a big player, and he's appearing in a court somewhere in D.C. pretty soon. Um, And... uh, uh, the U.S. media got interested in him through a Democratic operative, a DNC operative, as a matter of fact, who was also a Ukrainian nationalist named Alexandra Chalupa, who was working with the DNC on opposition research. That was, you know, that's 
that's the way that they describe what she does. Uh, she helped Michael Isakoff shape his stories on Manafort, and it was Politico in January 2017, uh, before Trump had taken office, uh, reporter Ken Vogel uh, seemed like he was using Chalupa as his sole source. Um, and then it, as he was writing all these stories using Chalupa as a source, he was saying that, well, w we've got sources in Ukraine that are telling us that Russia is interfering in U.S. politics. Oh, my God, hair on fire. And, you know, it turns out to be this one person who was uh, deeply entrenched in this foreign policy adventure, uh, this proxy war against Russia. And so Ken Vogel like turned around and burned her um, and said, uh, uh, wrote a story said, that said Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump have backfired. Ken Vogel wrote, quote, Ukrainian government officials tied to help uh, tried to help Hillary Clinton and undermine Trump by publicly questioning her fitness for office. They also disseminated documents implicating a top Trump aide in corruption and suggested they were investigating the matter only to back away after the election. She's referred to as an American operative. That's Alexander Chalupa consulting for the DNC. She met with top officials in the Ukrainian embassy in Washington in an effort to expose ties between Trump, Manafort, and Russia. So that, that created the backbone of what became Russiagate. Um, but this is just clear evidence, plain as day, that the Ukrainian government interfered in the 2016 election and helped influence the Russiagate narrative that Trump was secretly colluding with Russia. And this is definitely uh, deserving of attention and investigation. And that was really the source of Trump's call with Zelensky. That's why it's important. Trump, was leaning on Zelensky to push back on all of this, uh, you know, Russia stuff. Now, and and there's a deep irony here because all of this pressure on Trump pushed him to a more aggressive foreign policy stance vis-a-vis -vis Russia and, and our military uh, supplies to them. He is taking a much more aggressive stance than uh Barack Obama did, which is, it's ironic, but it's, but it's also not, uh, not surprising at all. Um, way back in 2019, people were aware and were worried. I know that I was worried that as the impeachment was focusing on this phone call with Zelensky and Ukraine, that what was happening was they were centering a, uh, a scandal uh, that was going to highlight another scandal that was on the Democrat side, which is the Hunter Biden situation. And that turned, you know, that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, Democrats are in this awkward position where they have to defend the fact that Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, got $50,000 a month uh, 
sitting on the board of a Ukrainian gas company's uh, board of directors uh, a month, just a few months after his father helped back a coup in Ukraine. And Democrats have to defend that once again. And um, uh, they have to defend once again that the prosecutor that Biden got fired was fired because he was investigating Hunter Biden's company. Uh, even if that's not true, says Blumenthal, uh, the, um, it shows you how you can't trust what is coming out of Ukraine. Even if Giuliani, and we're back to Giuliani now, so this is Giuliani making these uh, allegations uh, about Hunter Biden back at the time. Even if Giuliani's suspicions aren't true, and like I said, this is October 2019, and Giuliani is, you know, seems to get be getting out way over his skis on what he knows about Hunter Biden and, uh, versus what the public knows about Hunter Biden. So I wonder if he's got a hold of the laptop at this time. Uh, because he starts to get really loud about what's going on. And, um, you know, he starts planning that, that trip for December. Um, so it's damning enough that Hunter Biden got the gig. Uh, imagine if one of Trump's kids had gotten a comparable gig in Venezuela, you know, like let's say Trump's coup in Venezuela had been successful, like Biden's coup in Ukraine was. And then all of a sudden Don Jr., you know, sits on the board of Pedavesa or whoever in uh, whatever gas company in or oil company rather in Venezuela, you know, that that would we would have a, a hairy eyeball out for that um, just as much as there should be a hairy eyeball out for for this material. Um, Victor Shorkin, the fired prosecutor, was related to an investigation um, about Burisma Holdings. Now, this is this is this stuff is getting you know kind of deep, and I'm going to leave it here. And I'm breaking in with a little bit of an edit to let you know that we are breaking this into two parts because it's just going too long. So that was the basics. That's the fundamentals. Now. We have to connect some dots as to what's going on with these two prosecutors. Who was the former prosecutor? What was he about, Shorkin? And who was the new prosecutor, Lashenko? And what 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 was he about? And I'll I'll give you a little uh, uh, spoiler alert. Lashenko was literally in prison for corruption before he became the preferred prosecutor that the United States uh, wanted to install. Uh, instead of Shorkin. So we want to talk about these two prosecutors and also go into Burisma's relationship with the Atlantic Council and how the Atlantic Council in turn helps determine what is uh, shared on Facebook and on social media platforms. So this whole story comes full circle next week. All right, so same bat time, same bat channel. Next week, we're going to pick up with part two. We're going to connect these dots. We're going to talk about how uh, all of this fits together. And 
maybe make some predictions for what happens uh, after the election. Right now, we have Rick Spizak interviewing Maggie Herchala. She is the environmental activist from South Florida who uh, spoke out at a county commission meeting about, I believe it was water quality issues, and found herself uh, being sued for everything she has um, for calling out the polluters in South Florida. So without further ado, f- without further ado here is Rick Spizak and Maggie Herchata. Hello, Miss Herchala. This is Rick Spizak. How are you? I am just fine, thank you. That's wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to introduce Miss Maggie Herchala, who has been a lifelong Floridian student, I'm going to say, of nature, a wildlife enthusiast, a kayaker, a hiker. Uh, and not only that, she's a person that's taken that concern, those interests, and brought them to her community and made a better community because of those interests of hers and that study of hers. I'm going to cut right to the chase. Maggie has been involved in, uh, first, she was letting a community know about some issues re- regarding a development and a rock pit. And because she tried to let some people know about concerns she had, she has been embroiled in a series of lawsuits. Uh, she's gotten judgments against her. Maggie, could you please catch us up? I understand you've got a case now. Is it is it being brought to the Supreme Court? Yes. Uh, for seven years, I have been the poster child for a slap suit. That's a strategic lawsuit against public participation, which is a fancy way of saying something that corporations discovered in the 1960s as a way to shut up people who were criticizing them. Uh, and the slap suit, in uh, I guess its most extreme form, simply claims that you can't criticize a, a company or criticize uh, uh, any contract because uh, that would be tortious interference with the contract. Uh, at any rate, we have been through several layers of court, and on September 10th, we filed with the United States Supreme Court for a writ of certiorari. Uh, which means we're asking them if they'll review the case. And then on October 10th, uh, we got a wonderful amicus filed by a number of groups, and more recently we got a second amicus filed. Uh, That means that now we wait. Um, It's not something that has been accepted by the Supreme Court yet. Uh, They can easily simply ignore it and not look at the case. On the other hand, the amicuses, which are groups of national standing, make clear that this is now the ultimate First Amendment case. And they think that the Supreme Court needs to hear it and needs to reverse it. The, the crux of the issue, it seems to me, and the reason this is a First Amendment issue, is essentially they are seeking, and through these slap suits, they have too often been successful quelching any impact, any any comment from people who have a different opinion than one that meets the needs of the corporation. And you have had a, a wonderful set of lawyers and of many, many allies, and now it's gotten to the Supreme Court. 
could you talk a little bit about, you know, many people would be daunted with the idea of pursuing a freedom of speech issue like this. And you have said more than on one occasion that this is something that helps, that makes you feel patriotic and gives you strength. It, it really does. Uh, I guess it sounds a little goofy, but I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing at age 79 than defending the First Amendment. Uh, you know, America means something. American history means something to me. And uh, this whole thing has been a re-education for me on the First Amendment. Uh, the First Amendment has five things in it. If you look at most of the uh, Bill of Rights, most of the First Amendments that were done all together on the Constitution, they're one-at-a-time things. But in the First Amendment, you have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble, and freedom to petition government for redress of grievances. And I was recently reading an article on how, how was it we got all those together in one amendment, and the answer was that at the time of the Founding Fathers, when they were writing the Constitution and when they wrote the Bill of Rights, those were the five freedoms. So the five core freedoms of America are about the fact that we were, at that point, outlining our reasons in the Declaration of Independence why we had a right to revolt against King George. And we said we had the right to revolt because um, we had certain unalienable rights. And what they listed as the unalienable right, the right you didn't give up when you formed a government, was the right to think and the right to express what you think. And so those five freedoms are what you want to think in terms of religion, and your right to express it, what you want to say in terms of freedom of speech, what you want to write in terms of freedom of the press, your right to get together with other people and express what you think, and then finally the one that's a particular key one in this case, the right to petition government, the right to, tell, to talk back to government, to tell them what you think they ought to do. I, I don't know if you caught it, but just recently... There have been some hearings regarding the placement of an additional person at the very last second of this current Trump administration before the election. And, you know, this woman who is uh, set before us as a potential Supreme Court justice couldn't name those five. I don't know if you heard. No, she, she only missed the one that I'm most interested in, which is the petition clause. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> Uh, it is ironic. I hope it is not a foretelling of the future. Uh, but I think it's it's really exciting for me that the first amicus that we had filed on our behalf was jointly filed by a group called Protect the Protesters, which includes almost everybody in the world in the partridge in the pear tree. Uh, it includes a vast number of organizations of all kinds that have had themselves sued in a slap suit, that have had to deal with somebody trying to silence their advocacy. In addition to those, and a lot of those are liberal groups, we've got the Cato Institute side by side saying that this is the very basis of American democracy. And if you do not reverse 
this precedent, no one will be able to safely talk to their government again. On top of that, we've just had another amicus filed with a whole large group of environmental organizations that make the point that you can't have scientific arguments if everybody is right or wrong. If every statement that you consider wrong on the other side, you can call a lie and something that they have to pay uh, 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 damages for. And you start thinking about the uh, what happened, you know, in its simplest way, what I said about the rock pit was that Mr. Lindemann had promised me a study uh, uh, that would document the benefits of the project and that there had been no SERP study produced. Uh, that's what the written email that the lower court decided was a lie and a lie that I knew was a lie. <sighs> Uh, it all happens to be true, uh, but the lawyer for the other side managed to convince the judge and the jury that what I said was there were no studies that documented the benefit, uh, as opposed to the fact that I was looking for a very particular study, the SERP study. But suppose I said what they said. Suppose I said that there were no studies that documented the benefit. If you get into the fact that what does document mean, to me it means that reasonably or adequately prove the benefits. Uh, the court appears to have read documented as did they produce any documents that talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> but try to imagine that you've got two groups on the, you've got oil companies and a bunch of people who are really concerned about climate change and on either side they're lobbying their congressmen, uh, can they sue each other if uh, the oil uh, companies say uh, it has not been documented that climate change is happening? Can they be sued? If the people who say uh, it has not been documented that, you know, uh, uh, Oil is not part of uh, the reason for climate change. Can they be sued? Uh, take the situation we're in now with all the government controversies that are going on right now. Uh, can the maskers and the anti-maskers sue each other? If one of them says the use of masks to protect you has not been documented, can you sue them if you're a mask company? Or if you're on the other side, can you sue them if they say the opposite? So you're really coming down in terms of the environmental brief to what a court out in California said when Greenpeace was sued by a big timber company, which is scientific debates ah, are about getting to an answer. They're about public participation. They're about hearing all viewpoints so you can see which direction to go in. They are not about having a court decide who's right, who's wrong, who's lying, who's truthful. Wow. Wow. Well, these, these uh, fellows picked the wrong patriot. Well, they thought they picked the right person. They thought that if they made me shut up, everybody else would shut up. And one of the things that thrills me about the case, so it's somewhat exhausting, is the number of 
you know, my wonderful lawyers, my wonderful family, my wonderful friends, the number of people I don't even know who have uh, helped out, supported me, and spoken up. Uh, they saw what happened to me, and they spoke up anyway, and I am so proud of them. Well, you are a real environmental hero, in my opinion, and a constitutional hero. Uh, I'm sure the last thing in the world you wanted to do was to spend a bunch of time with lawyers and marching around and, and hearing briefs and all that. But by gum, sometimes that's what it takes to protect the environment. And I just have to tell you, Mr. Chala, you are one amazing citizen. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, one of the things that, you know, keeps me going is the fact that if somebody doesn't stand up to the big bullies, then that becomes the precedent. And all the little bullies will come out of the woodwork, and That's nobody right. will stand a chance anymore. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, you have uh, had a marvelous background in service to the community. Uh, a lot of people give you much credit for the the general, what I'm going to say, intelligent development that has occurred in Martin County. Could you talk about your years on the county commission and what you tried to do in terms of safeguarding development and making sure that, should we say, they didn't pour concrete right up to the sand? <laughs> well, the first time I ran for office back in uh, 1974, I was, uh, uh, you know, 34 years old, and uh, my mother looked at my campaign picture and said, that'll be fine if your constituents want a 12-year-old commissioner. Uh, <laughs> my, my opponent ran an ad saying, if Maggie Herchala is elected, another nail will never be driven in Martin County. Oh and God. I think we had about 30,000 people then, and we've got about 160,000 now. So that was obviously not true. I am yeah. not – I have frequently been accused of being a no-growther who hates developers. I am not a no-growther, and I actually like a few developers. Uh, but what I – can't claim to have started. It had already been started, I think, before then by Commissioner Timer Powers, who I served with for two years and had been on the board for a while, and for a very strong Audubon Society and uh, environmental coalition that had been working to control growth in Martin County. And I guess that our motto as simple as it was, was really what it was all about, which was keep Martin County a good place to live. Uh, the eternal pressures for growth because it will make you more money or it will uh, make more jobs or it will make more highways or it will make more of this or that or the other. Uh, we pretty well know in most places it grew too fast and too carelessly. Didn't leave it a better place to live. It didn't leave it with better schools. It left it with more crowded roads. It left it with more crime. Uh, it left it less of a place you wanted to retire in and less of a place you wanted to raise your children in. And so what we looked to was to tr try to do the kind of responsible development that didn't just say everything's got to happen bigger and faster because that's the only way the economy's going to survive and we're all going to make money. And we had the occasion uh, after 
15 or 20 years with stops and starts. I have lost as often as I have won in terms of battles <laughs> on the county commission. But when you looked at what had happened in Martin County versus the counties around us, uh, what you found was our economy was stronger. When there was a recession, we had less layoffs. Our school system was better. Um, our crime rate was lower. You know, across the board, the kind of things that you can see from the census information, we were keeping it a good place to live. I'm sorry to say now that don't come here for that reason because uh, we now have a county commission who does, who is, uh, let's say, more enamored of the idea that the more we grow, the better off we all will be. Uh, but as an experiment over a 20- or 30-year period, I think Martin County is an example of the fact that a community can keep itself a good place to live. You know, Florida has so many examples of basically exactly what you're talking about, uncontrolled growth, growth with the quality of life, the damned. Um, and and the, the examples are, are too many to, to count. But... Martin County has for a long time been been a, a clear example of how intelligent growth can happen. You know, for a long time, uh, the people who were, should we say, insensitive to the environmental arguments uh, used to say that we killed, cared more about snail darters than we did about human beings. But I think the environmental community has made it clear over the last few decades that quality of life, that environmental quality includes includes human life and includes quality of life for human beings as well as the birds and the fish and the creatures. Uh, and, you know, really their argument has drained away because the argument of the environmentalist community today is let's make this a, a good place, as you just said, a good place for people to live. And people are part of the ecology. For, for good or bad, we're part of the ecology. I, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago and right up to now for some people, uh, <laughs> anybody who stood in the way of growth was a no-growther, and environmentalists were little old ladies in tennis shoes who didn't like people and did like birds. Uh, uh, number one, that's hogwash. Uh, uh, number two, you're absolutely right. Uh, I care about the wild environment because I care about my children and my grandchildren. Um, I care about the wilderness because I deeply believe and I think I have a whole lot of scientific evidence to back up what I'm saying, that the more we take care of our wilderness and of our natural systems, the better we take care of ourselves. That's that's an absolutely very, very critical perspective. To to drag you into one more controversy. <laughs> yes, I, Always I willing. Have, hey, hey, I already owe $4.4 million. <laughs> what the hey? <laughs> um, one other uh, issue, environmental issue, that's bedeviled Florida for just a long, long time. And uh, although there was a lot of noise about how it was going to be fixed and improved, um, and I'm referring to Lake Okeechobee and the effluent that, that has just wrecked havoc on uh, both the Caloosahatchee and the uh, St. Lucie estuary. Um, you know, the promises were the promises and drainage fields and all that. What do you think, as, as a person who's been concerned for a long time, what would you say are intelligent steps that could be taken to take us from where we are with this 
septic, poisonous lake in the middle of the state uh, that has to go somewhere and has to be cleaned up somehow. What what do you think with your... Uh, actually, we have managed uh, with, uh, you know, a variety of groups from the Sierra Club to the Conservation Alliance to Bull Sugar to Friends of the Everglades um, uh, on the southwest coast, on the east coast, and uh, further south down to the Florida Keys to pull together on a single line, and that is send clean water south. Uh, in the beginning, Lake Okeechobee was a great wide flowway. It was from Orlando and Mickey Mouse down to Lake Okeechobee. It was the wide Kissimmee Valley with a winding river, but a huge floodplain where that river spread out every year when it rained a lot. And it came to Lake Okeechobee, and it spread out around Lake Okeechobee, and then it overflowed to the south. Uh, it never overflowed into the St. Lucie Inlet over here in Stewart, where I am. Mm -hmm. uh, it flowed to some degree to the west coast on the Caloosahatchee. But most of that water went south. It went south and created the Florida Everglades. Uh, and that flow from Lake Okeechobee has been cut off. Uh, it's been cut off beginning way back in the 1920s, growing vegetables and growing sugar just south of Lake Okeechobee. And the most important thing we can do, not just for the estuaries where they're not now dumping Lake Okeechobee, not just for Lake Okeechobee that we're keeping at levels that are not healthy for um, uh, the whole environment or ecology of the lake, but for Miami's water supply, uh, for Everglades National Park's survival, for Florida Bay and the fishing industry of the Florida Keys, and even going out to the Florida to the reefs in the Florida Keys, everything to the south of us benefits if we send clean water from Lake Okeechobee South, where it used to go, and everything where the dirty water is now being dumped benefits if we do that. Very good, very good. Um, and I think I'd, I'd throw one more thing in, Rick, because it's going please to be uh, a continuing controversy that uh, it's one of those things that sounds like uh, um, uh, a mad and angry environmentalist on LSD invented it to scare small children. Uh, and it's hard to pronounce. It's called cyanobacteria. Uh, uh, so we call it uh, we call it blue green algae, even though it's not an algae, um, and that is the fact that as part of climate change and as part of warming, we're beginning to see toxic algae blooms, not just in Lake Okeechobee, where a couple of years ago we had 90% of the lake covered by that bloom, uh, but all around the world. Reservoirs in the Saudi Arabian desert have cyanobacteria blooms. The Kansas City water supply has a, a reservoir that has blooms. Uh, the water supply of Lake of Toledo was uh, turned off for several weeks because of blooms in uh, uh, Lake Erie. Uh, in Monterey Bay, 23 sea otters died uh, from cyanobacteria washing out from uh, drainage canals into the bay. And what's so scary about it is that it produces cyanotoxins that are difficult to kill, that accumulate in the sediments, that accumulate in the food chain. And the various health effects are, to put it mildly, terrifying. Um, the immediate health effect of dropping somebody in a, a bunch of blue-green algae may be nothing at all. 
somebody else may get a terrible rash or have trouble breathing. People react differently, and some people are more sensitive. But the long-term um, effect is liver cancer. And the, uh, Ohio State University did a study that found that the hot spots for cyanobacteria around this country, including around Lake Okeechobee and on the estuaries where they dump the uh, blue-green algae, have twice the liver, uh, twice the liver, uh, twice the rate of death uh, from um, uh, non-alcoholic uh, uh, liver problems. Um, the cyanotoxin, which grows in Lake Okeechobee, is most famous for destroying uh, the liver. But over time, it also, and we've got studies from China that shows that, causes diabetes in children who grow up eating fish out of a lake that is co contaminated, uh, attacks a whole bunch of other parts of the body. And then there is... Uh, well, and there is also another cyanotoxin that has been discovered in Lake Okeechobee and in Florida Bay and in the Indian River Lagoon. And that one uh, appears to cause Alzheimer's and ALS. Uh, that, uh, but only if you're exposed over a long time. Now, how do you get exposed? You don't have to live on the water. You don't have to fall in the water. All you have to do is breathe it. Um, the study from Lake Erie showed that a mile in from the Indiana Dunes, there were uh, identifiable amounts of cyanotoxin in the air. So this is a problem in terms of climate change and in what we're not used to that we would prefer not to believe that we're going to have to face and do something about. And right now, Florida's beginning to recognize it and beginning to deal with it. Two years ago, when the lake was full of um, um, toxic algae, when the estuaries were full of toxic algae and it was running down the beaches 15 miles up to Fort Pierce, the health department of the state of Florida says there has been no proof of long-term health damage. Uh, they've come around now. Uh, but we really need to be looking at that, and we really need to understand that, among the other reasons, we need to deal with climate change. That's one of them. Well, Maggie Herchala, thank you so much for the work that you've done to improve the human habitat, the wildlife of Florida, and now for your First Amendment battle. I wish you every success, my dear, for you and for all our children. i got to tell you, it's been a pleasure and an honor. My dear, <laughs> Thank you, likewise. Rick. Likewise. Have okay. a wonderful day. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Okay, that was so good. We've got uh, Janine Malaf teed up for the Justice Report, and she wanted me to play this trailer for a new documentary coming out before her segment. So here we go. The CDC has identified a case of coronavirus in Washington state. The words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all, and it's uh, gonna be just fine. Whatever happens, we're totally prepared. The scientists knew what to do for the pandemic response. The plan was in front of us, but leadership would not do it. 
It is time to lay our careers on the line and push back. It's clear the United States did not perform to the best of its ability with the coronavirus. What went wrong for us? The truth is that political leaders caused avoidable death and destruction. The scientists sounded the alarm every day. The U.S. government was doing nothing. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. It'll be wonderful. It'll be a gift from heaven. It's complete He has no idea what he's talking about. I decided to break protocol and alert Americans. A key government scientist was removed because he wouldn't climb on the president's bandwagon. They started to blame other people and it was frightening. There was real fear of retribution and we were watching the number of deaths in the U.S. tick higher and higher. Do you take responsibility? No, I don't take responsibility at all. We've never had a failure like this. The truth is finally coming out. There's so much to expose. We have it totally under control. All right. That is a trailer for a new documentary. Uh, Jenny Moloff, tell us a little bit about what we just heard. Okay, well, I'm glad you guys heard it. I didn't. This is a doc. This is a trailer for a brand new emergency documentary, and the title is "Totally Under Control," and that's the official trailer. It's going to premiere on Hulu this Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. This is from the director of Enron the movie, the documentary Enron: The Smartest People in the Room. So this director is not new, and comes with important whistleblowing documentary on the premeditated refusal by Trump and his administration to contain the COVID pandemic. The documentary was filmed in secret for many reasons. Um, Co-director Alex Gibney, he had more than one director, but he was, I guess, the primary one, said the theme is science versus politics. And Gibney was right on the mark. And that's the crime. When facing a pandemic, or to use a word more familiar to the older generation, an epidemic, Censoring the truth about the science is criminal. This decision began a domino effect of stupidity as Trump supporters refused to mask or socially distance. Once Trump pushed this theme that the scientists, epidemiologists were just another opinion without any relative merit, those Americans preferring to place immediate satisfaction over prudence, like spoiled children, were given the green light to continue along an irresponsible path. So this a documentary was about, again, the title totally under control is ironic. It's about Operation Warp Speed, where they were trying to develop a coronavirus uh, vaccine. But the documentary really examines the government's failure to contain the virus. And it really points out the factory whistleblowers that Trump was, with premeditation, preventing the truth from coming out. And one of the whistleblowers was Dr. Rick Bright. So... Basically, as COVID spread throughout the country, they, they put this together in five months, okay? And Gibney was personally motivated because a friend of his had died from COVID, and the friend was on a ventilator. And Gibney explains, quote, it seemed like the federal government had badly bungled their response. I thought it would be a potent thing to try to do a film investigating that and see if we could release it before the election. It seemed that the election was a kind of existential judgment 
on the government's performance, end quote. And not just the government's performance. This is really about a federal level of the government that is being run by Trump with an iron fist. Okay, no doubt about it. And there were co-directors Ophelia Hari Tiyun and Susan Hillinger. So to quote, give, to quote the other director, Hillinger, quote, it became pretty clear in our early research that we had to look at how, how prepared this administration was going into this pandemic. Being able to focus on those early decisions became really critical because we realized everything that we were experiencing in May when we started and through the summer were direct results of those early decisions that were made. Gibney also was quoted saying, this is not something that just happened that had to be this way. We could have contained this. So much of the damage and so many of the deaths could have been prevented, end quote. So totally under control is really documenting that. So there were whistleblowers in the film, there were whistleblowers in the film, medical experts, other firsthand witnesses. So Gibney also was quoted saying, it's so important that a nation doesn't allow its scientific evidence to be undermined by political exigencies. It's a super important lesson for us, for citizens to insist that they get the real dope and hear it from the mouths of scientists, not from politicians who are trying to twist their words, end quote. So now, trying to secure interviews with whistleblowers was one of the difficulties they had, all right? And they came up with a way to film it using what they called the COVID cam. Cinematographer Ben Bloodwell, basically they came up with a setup as a camera draped in a protective screen. Um, so they were able to pick it, they were able to set it into people's houses and they were able to just do it there. How did they get the whistleblowers to come out publicly? That was difficult. Quote, uh, according to Hillinger, people who were in the federal government or had recently left but still wanted a career in politics, it was tremendously scary for them to talk. These are people who frequently are off the record sources for journalists and asking them to show their faces in a documentary is different, and using their names is different. I had a lot of off-the-record conversations with these folks, and they knew the story was important to get out, but they just felt, they just felt it would be the end of their career, end quote. So, you know, CDC personnel wouldn't talk, Center for Disease Control, even though it's the public's right to know the truth. And Hillinger was quoted as saying, over the summer I was starting to hear from sources, no one's going to call you back. No one's going to email you back because they actually believe our inboxes are being monitored and the phones are tapped, end quote. So you have basically Trump officials actively censoring and interfering, not only with CDC reports, but they were jerry-rigging the data on COVID, which is basically tampering with data. So if this becomes an eventual criminal case, that's tantamount to felony-level evidence tampering. Since when do legitimate people tamper with data? They don't. So Trump officials were interfering with CDC reports, and that was as reported by Politico. So um, basically, Hillinger said the message, quote, the messaging coming out of about how to protect yourself, about the virus, about where it was spreading and how it was spreading, that was all being controlled by the White House. Okay, end quote. So... That was the film, and I wanted people to hear the trailer. So now I have another article. This was from Yahoo Canada, and this just a real short one, and it basically said that it dealt with the documentary Totally in Control, What Went Wrong with the U.S. COVID Response. Keep in mind, the main director, Alex Gibney, has won Academy Awards. He's the guy that did the Enron documentary. And 
you know, basically what they did was the subjects that were interviewed revealed their, they were dealing, they were uh, revealing their personal experiences. And the subjects included Dr. Rick Wright, who's the former director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. They also um, got former director of the CDC, Dr. Tom Frieden. They also were able to get Dr. Eva Lee, who's an infectious disease specialist at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And then they also got to appear on the film Max Kennedy, who was a White House COVID-19 supply chain volunteer, who also happens to be the grandson of Robert F. Kennedy. So Dr. Bright and Alex Gibney, you know, Bright explains the distrust in the Trump administration, okay? And he's like one of the main people in this film. Um, and so you can basically see Dr. Bright said, quote, the plan was in front of us, but leadership would not do it, okay? He said, it is time to lay our careers on the line and push back. So um, he was a former BARDA director, and he is, you know, experienced epidemiologist. So we have Max Kennedy, RFK's grandson, who was on Jared Kushner's COVID-19 supply chain. And he blew the whistle, too. In fact, you know, he violated his non-disclosure agreement and filed an anonymous whistleblower complaint to Congress and then quit the, com the committee. Keep in mind, this committee that was supposed to deal with the COVID-19 supply chain for things like PPE was composed of a bunch of 20-something know-nothings that maybe were studying economics, you know, in college, but they didn't know what they were doing. And Kennedy saw that, and he witnessed it. And he also, the most damning petty fact was that while Max Kennedy was a volunteer with this committee, he witnessed personally that the committee was not was utterly unable to procure a single mask, not one. And that's pretty damning right there. So in the movie, Totally Under Control compares the U.S. response to COVID, for instance, versus South Korea. And you get to hear from Dr. Kim Jin Young, who is an infectious disease doctor at the Incheon Medical Center in South Korea. And she reveals that the CDC was originally a wealth of health education. But then Trump came in and his administration, Trump made sure that his administration politicized public health measures. And they politicized it to the point that they failed to contain the virus and they placed over 200,000 lives on the line. This couldn't have to be this way. The politicization of public health measures interfered with actually getting the job done. So there was another article in Slate that dealt with the same issues as the film. Okay. And it really goes through the whole thing. You know, by now we know that Trump has lied about COVID from the very beginning. You know, we also know that he gave Bob Woodward 17 interviews. He volunteered for those interviews. They were all taped. And in the tape, Trump admitted that, one, he knew the virus was deadly. Two, he knew that it was airborne. Okay? And yet, he actively discouraged people from social distancing and masking. He treated it like it was basically a, 
a personal preference. And hundreds of thousands of people have died because of Donald Trump's failure to lead properly. So it goes a little further than that. We know that China downplayed the, virus, the deadly nature of the virus, okay? But the, li- the timeline of lies, Trump, according to Slate, collaborated with the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, president of China, and they concealed the threat, which kept the U.S. government from responding properly. They also censored and silenced those who tried to warn the public and punish people like Dr. Rick Brake, who basically was forced out of his position. And the truth is that Donald Trump and the people that basically backed down are responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths that didn't have to be. The evidence is there in the public record. that It's scattered in a disorganized mess of emails, leaks, interviews, hearings, scientific reports, and Trump's often disjointed statements. And so this piece in the slate documents Trump's interference and negligence every, every step of this massive government failure, including preparation, mobilization, public communication, testing, mitigation, and reopening. So Trump had received warnings about a possible pandemic for the past four years, and he totally disregarded it. And this was documented in a White House government briefing. Um, he received briefings, reports, simulations. From, this is documented in Politico. Intelligence documents from DNA.gov, intelligence assessments. And he just refused to do anything. He tried to blame it on the Obama administration, and it's true. We were down on ventilators and PPE, but to say we had none wasn't true either. So why did Trump neglect this need after he received so many warnings? Well, he brags that he spent $2 trillion to, to um, build up the military. And here's how Trump criminally deprived public health agencies of vital supplies and personnel. He squeezed the budget for pandemics, and that was reported by the Washington Post. He disbanded the federal team that's in charge of protecting the country from biological threats, again reported by the Washington Post and ABC News. And then he stripped down the Beijing office of the Centers for Disease Control, and that was according to Reuters. And Trump's been asked many times to explain these decisions, and that was that quote, if we have a need, we can get these people back again. But that's not what it was really about. Trump's second response, the issue wasn't important. Okay? So... The bottom line was Trump was asked by Brett Beyer at a Fox uh, News town hall why he hadn't updated the test production system. And Trump said, quote, I'm thinking about a lot of other things, too, like trade. I'm not thinking about this, end quote. Now, Trump's arrogance kept him from listening to experts. He's incapable of being a team player. But his incompetent decision, in early January 2020, Trump was warned according to the Washington Post, about this deadly new virus. He was told by the Chi- that the Chinese government had understated the outbreak, okay? And there's a timeline. And that was very convenient for Trump and his family because they signed a very lucrative trade deal with Beijing, okay? Um, and he didn't want to basically uh, rock the boat on that one. So he signed the deal with China on January 15th, um, Three days later, Alex Azar, Trump's Secretary of Health and Human Services, phoned with an updated spread of the virus. On January 21st, the CDC announced the first infection in the United States. Um, And then uh, Dr. Fauci 
and Nancy Massonier, Director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases for the Virus Being Circulate Around the World. And again, he tried to just blame it on China. But, you know, in late January, Trump's medical advisors agreed with the national security team that he should end suspend uh, travel from China. But Trump actually resisted on that one. He didn't want to do it at first. And again, he was more concerned about the trade deal than anything else. Um, and he had spent months building a relationship with the Chinese president. Um, and then he had said this to the Chinese president in a conversation that, according to the Wall Street Journal, was witnessed by then National Security Advisor John Bolton. And Trump worried that a travel ban would scare the stock market. Again, that was reported by the Wall Street Journal, hardly a liberal bastion. Um, but eventually, on January 31st, he gave in. And basically, there's steps that should have taken place, but didn't until after it was too late. Okay? Um, and we're going to be talking about this next week as well, because there's so much here, unfortunately. Um, on February 28th, Trump was quoted saying, they say, oh, you should do more. There's nothing more you can do. That's not true. Okay? Because, and here's the thing, they tried to blame it everything on China, but people were arriving from Europe, practically 2 million of them in February, and hundreds of them were already infected. These were not Chinese, and that had helped accelerate the spread of the virus here in the U.S. And then, you know, the second problem was we needed to gear up production of PPE, masks, ventilators, other medical supplies. Trump was warned again about desperate PPE shortages, um, again, he he just disregarded it. Even Alex Lazar requested $4 billion to stock up. The White House refused, and that was again reported by the Washington uh, Post. Um, and Trump just ridiculed it. And then there was the third misstep, which was basically to conduct massive testing. That's what South Korea did, and it, and it worked. But again, South Korea identified their first case on January 20th, the same as the U.S., but that's the only thing we have in common. Um, by February 3rd, South Korea uh, expanded their testing. And by February 27th, they were checking, testing samples for more than 10,000 people a day. The U.S. program, by mid-February, we were only testing about 100 samples a day. 100. Not kidding. This is really vile. But Trump didn't care. Okay. In fact, he didn't really want that much testing done because he was afraid that it would elevate the numbers of those infected and it would make his, his election, re-election possibilities, um, it would hurt re-election possibilities and make him look bad. Again, this was all about him. So he risked lives to maintain those low infection rate numbers by basically refusing to test and making sure that we didn't have the supplies to test. Um, so Trump did more than ignore warnings. He actively suppressed them, and that's the criminal component, all right? And his reason was that warnings might scare investors on Wall Street, okay? Um, and again, Trump tried to blame the Chinese, and according to Slate, he did collaborate with the Chinese president to deceive the Chinese and American public. For weeks, he was, Trump was briefed on the situation in China, in fact, including the fact that Beijing downplayed the, uh, the serious nature of the virus. 
So he knew this. And, you know, once again, he just went along with it. He just kept saying everything's under control, which it obviously was not. Um, so then he tried pushing that warm weather theory that it would all go away. And then later, according to White House.gov briefings, Trump's own remarks, he, he claims the Chinese president promoted the idea that come the summer it would go away. So all of this deals with the fact that this movie highlights the whistleblowers that were brave enough to come forward, show their faces, give their names, and basically out the fact that Donald Trump is responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths because he chose to disregard what scientific and medical experts told him. He chose to he chose to basically disregard the fact that we needed sufficient supplies. He chose to disregard the fact that we needed to be, to do mass testing, that we needed mitigation practice such as masking and social distancing. And once again, all of these things, it was more about protecting the stock market and it was more about, um, you know, protecting his ability to get reelected. The fact that 200,000 people died is irrelevant to Donald Trump. So there's more, and we're going to be covering this again because there's so, there's so much detail here. I can't get through it all in a half hour. But I want everybody, especially there in Florida, a battleground state, to know that the documentary, Totally Under Control, will premiere on Hulu beginning Tuesday, October 20th. It's just this coming Tuesday. Please watch the film. Become enraged and join the fight. Over 220,000 Americans did not have to die. There were things we could have done, and Donald Trump made sure that no, nobody's administration would respond properly. That's not an accident. So please watch the film. Now, a generalized word on leadership, something missing in our political system. True leadership requires a willingness to take responsibility, an open heart ready to self-sacrifice, and a commitment to the truth. None of these qualities are in Donald Trump's emotional makeup. Yet we shouldn't be shocked by Trump's moral shortcomings, as his behavior is typical of corporate CEOs, corporate attorneys, and mafia bosses. For far too long, the American public has allowed certain myths to take hold, including the myths that corporate chieftains make good political leaders. In truth, they do not. In fact, corporate heads and corporate attorneys have proven on average to solely work for the 1%. Until we refuse to elevate these greedy, selfish monsters of Wall Street and similar venues, nothing will change for the positive. COVID just was a very strong symptom that showed how morally bankrupt our system is. Perhaps without COVID, we wouldn't realize it. We need leaders who will not only inspire, but lead by example. We need leaders who consistently place the welfare of others ahead of themselves. We've been told that such people don't exist. It's just another lie. They do exist, but they do not have fat bankrolls for expensive campaigns. We must form an army of volunteers who are willing once again to knock on doors or make phone calls for especially progressive leaders as they did for Bernie. This election cycle, all progressives must also realize that our brothers and sisters of color suffer the most 
under a Nazi like Trump. We must call a temporary truce. Vote for Biden-Harris in order to oust Trump. And then fight for progressive policies beginning the day after the swearing-in. We don't need the Obamas or the Clintons to lead the way. We don't need celebrities. We need each other. We need to realize that we get the government we deserve. If we won't fight these neo-Nazis, then this form of Trump Nazism will stay. We must fight with everything in our souls. The opposition that supports Trump and his band of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, I want you to believe there's nothing you can do to stop them. That's just another lie. Will we stand back and allow another Auschwitz on our own soil, or will we fight? There are many ways to fight and many ways to protest and contribute. We won't see another hero rise. We must find the heroism that resides deep in each one of us. The war waged against all of humanity that Trump exemplifies is based on greed, fear, and bigotry. Trump and his Nazis, yeah, they've won a few battles, but they cannot win the war unless we unilaterally surrender our collective conscience. To quote Holocaust survivor and Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Ali Weissel, quote, we must always fight injustice. And to quote him again, he'd say, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. So then I say, amen. And this is the first installment between now and the election of an examination of failed Trump policies and how he allowed COVID to run roughshod over our nation, how Donald Trump is responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. And tune in next week, and that's my report. Wow. Thank you so much, Janine. That was uh, uh Riveting, and I can't wait for your report next week. And what night is the uh, premiere of this show on Hulu? Tuesday. Tuesday, and the name. Uh, tell me the name of it one more time. Um, I, hold on a second. Uh, I believe it was totally under control. Totally under control. That should be easy to remember. So look for Totally Under Control on Hulu. I know a lot of people have uh, subscribed to that because we're starving for content as we're all locked down. So this is um, required watching. And thank you for bringing our attention to it. I am not sure if that... Uh, audio went out over the air so i am going to do some post-production on it and make sure it's in there for the right. uh, podcast great well thank you so much janine and we will talk to you again next week on this uh subject see you then all righty and for the rest of you guys we will uh we'll pick this up we'll uh we'll we'll continue this on and uh, as as always, uh, thank you so much for listening. Ninety seconds. And uh, I got to get out of here. All right. Bye bye.